This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to Rico Bronia all-star break. We're sitting on our ass. We're all sweating because it's really a hot outside edition of Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, I got a little week off from WFAM. Pete Hoffman, I think he's vacationing too, getting away from Tiki and Tierney. Uh, three things we're going to cover on the Rico today. Number one at the Grom update, obviously that's the, the latest news in Metland. Number two, a walk down memory lane, trade deadlines have passed, and really how we did as a franchise, good and bad. And the number three, the big board of trade targets as we sit here a couple of weeks away from this August 2nd or August 3rd trade deadline. I'm so used to July 31st that anything that's not July 31st is freaking weird. So I've made a big list of targets, mostly focusing on bats and mostly focusing on relief arms. We'll touch on a starting pitcher or two. We'll touch on a catcher. But it's really those two areas, which in my opinion, are clearly the biggest need going into the trade deadline. Let's start with Jake. Uh, Number one, I can't freak out about arm soreness in general. I can't freak out about, hey, he's going to throw a simulated game two days later as opposed to he's not throwing a simulated game at all, as opposed to he's being shut down and we're starting over. But because it's Jake, it's nerve-wracking. And I've said this before about Jake, who's my all-time favorite Met, so I am a DeGrom stan. But it is very, very difficult to trust that he's going to A, come back and be healthy, and then B, remain healthy. That's not being negative. That's not being some weird Will Pony and Met fan. That's just being real. DeGrom hasn't been healthy for a year. So as much as I love the guy, as much as I think most of us love the guy, as most as much as we all envision that one-two punch of Jake and Max coming at you in the postseason, it's a rumor until it happens. And I admit, a part of this, a small part of it, is coming from everything I dealt with as a net fan over the last few years. When this guy's healthy, when that guy's healthy, when this happens, and none of it ever happened. So I'm used to kind of dealing with rumors, <laughs> dealing with when or if this happens, this will be amazing. But look, the reality is I love the guy. I love Jake. It is very difficult based on the history of the last two years to trust that he's going to stay healthy. So two things can be true at the same time. Number one, you could be very nervous about him coming back and nervous about him remaining back. And number two, you could look at this quote-unquote setback and shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, not a big deal. Because the reality is, as long as he's throwing his simulated game on Thursday, and we'll see if he does, but as long as he is throwing his simulated game on Thursday, and as long as he's not being shut down, and as long as there isn't a new MRI that reveals some damage, there's nothing to get crazy about. But I think what we all have to realize, and this is even after Jake comes back, assuming he does, 
I know as a Met fan, as a DeGrom stan, I'm going to be checking Twitter worried for that latest update. And how can you not? Because of what we dealt with over the last couple of years. So Jake's one of those guys, and I love him, and I would still re-sign him, and I still can't imagine him in any other uniform, but I think start to start, update to update, we're always going to be on edge about when and if something bad is going to happen. And that's why, and I hear this talk about, well, you've got to attack the trade deadline as if Jake isn't coming back. Look, they attacked the offseason as if Jake wasn't coming back. That's why they signed Max Scherzer. At least that's one of my big beliefs because the Mets have one of those rare guys in baseball, a true ace. Ask yourself this, how many true aces are there in Major League Baseball? Seriously, think about that. How many true aces are there in Major League Baseball in 2022? And what you're going to realize when you think about that is it is a very, very short list. The Mets have, in theory, two of them, but right now one of them in Max Scherzer. And that's why when they made that move during the offseason, maybe calling it DeGrom insurance isn't the fairest thing in the world because we all envisioned Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling 2.0, but you do give yourself the ultimate DeGrom insurance. So let's just start there. Big deep breath. Hopefully he throws his bullpen on Thursday. There's no rush in terms of when his first start is, whether it's against the Yankees, whether it's against the Marlins, whether it's the next home, whatever the hell it is, as long as it's before September 1st. That's my line of demarcation. If it's after September 1st, then, well, I don't know if we're getting Jacob DeGrom in the postseason. All right? We all feel good? We feeling all right, Pete? You okay over there, or are you nervous about Jake? You feeling all right? I mean, I said it from day one. I thought September 1st was when he's going to pitch next, which I know is absurd to think that. But, I mean, realistically, he's taking this so slow. The team has taken it so slow. I'm not overly concerned just because of how slow this has gone. But I, to your point, though, you're saying that the, the they planned to have a season without DeGrom still doesn't mean that I want them to not be aggressive and try to bring in another starter. Well... We'll get to that in a second. When we get to the big board of trade targets, we'll break down the idea of adding a starting pitcher. Because, look, it's a cliche, but it's true. You never have enough starting pitching. I mean, I think that's, that's been proven throughout the years. Now, take this as a case study. I went back, a lot of it by memory, some of it by going to baseball reference, to remind myself of the last 25 years of the New York Mets at the trade deadline. Now, a couple of things as we go back into history. Number one, the selling at the trade deadline – I'm going to leave that part out. Selling Carlos Beltran for Zach Wheeler in 2011, I'm going to leave that part out. Selling uh, Brett Saberhagen to the Rockies at the trade deadline, I think that's past 25 years, but you get what I'm saying. I'm leaving it out because it's irrelevant. The Mets selling at the deadline, which they've done a lot of. I mean, look, there's been a lot of years in which we knew on July 31st this team was going nowhere. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of Bobby Bonilla for Alex Ochoa's, okay? Roberto Alomar for Royce Ring, if you want to call that a sell job. So I went back, a a lot of it by memory, some of it by, wow, I forgot about that one, and took a look at all the buying the Mets have done over the last 25 years. And there's a few conclusions that we're going to come to after you hear this list. So let's start with 1997. This was big for me because this was my first trade deadline as like someone who understands what the hell is going on and the Mets are buying. Because I understood when they sold David Cohn for Jeff Kent and Ryan Thompson. But you know what I understood? We sucked and we were going nowhere. 
I understood selling Bobby Bonilla to Baltimore for Alex Ochoa and Damon Buford, but what did I understand? We sucked and we were going nowhere. Brett Saberhagen for Juan Acevedo. But 1997 was different. Because for those of you in your mid to late 30s, early 40s, this was your first pennant race. This was my first pennant race. 1997. At the trade deadline, they actually didn't do anything at the trade deadline. They did something five days after the trade deadline. But we'll include the August trades, even though that doesn't exist anymore. They were six and a half games out of first place. And they were two games behind the Marlins in the wild card spot. And I remember as a fan saying to my dad, we got to do something. I mean, all these years of selling and selling and selling, what are we going to do? And I'll never forget this one. And this is such a weird trade in Met history because it really wasn't a buying and it wasn't a selling. It was like a regular player-for-player trade. But the way it came out was that the New York Mets were acquiring Brian McRae, Mel Rojas, and Turk Wendell from the Chicago Cubs. And this one is fresh in my memory. It was announced as the Mets are trading three players to be named later. That's the way I heard it on Mike and the Mad Dog as a kid. And I'm like, what players to be named? Who? Like, well, that matters. I mean, who the hell are they giving up? And it wasn't prospects. They gave up three guys from the major league roster, if you recall. Lance Johnson, Mark Clark, who almost pitched the Mets' first no-hitter, I think, the year before, and Manny Alexander. And as the names were popping up, as a kid, as a 14-year-old, I was a little pissed off about this. I loved Lance Johnson. One dog was his nickname. Remember, he had that incredible year, a year before in 1996. And while I always liked Brian McRae, because from afar, I thought he was like this brilliant defensive center fielder, let alone did I realize that once he came to the Mets, he wasn't. He was very overrated in my mind, at least. I remember being a, what? And let this be the framework for future generations. If you're going for it, And the 1997 Mets were going for it. They were two and a half games out of a wild card spot. Granted, it was the Marlins, the jacked up Marlins with all the talent that they had. You can't trade guys on your roster for other guys. Like, you got to trade prospects. That's that's the whole point. So looking back at that trade, how did it work out? Well, let's go through it. Mel Rojas was an abomination. He was one of the worst relievers in the history of the franchise. A long line of relievers you trade out at the deadline that go on to suck. Brian McRae was blah as a Met. He was blah. And Turk Wendell was the key to the trade. (laughs) Who the hell saw that coming? So I think looking back on it, it wasn't a bad trade. Because what did Lance Johnson, Mark Clark, and Manny Alexander do after that? Nothing really. So I kind of look back at it as the Turk Wendell trade. But Mel Rojas brought us so much pain. And if you recall, right after they made that trade, the Mets lost 8 out of 10 and sort of fell out of it. So... Our first foray, at least my first foray, 25 years ago into the trade deadline was a blah. All right? 1998. The Mets are three games out of a wild card spot. They're chasing the Sammy Sosa juiced up Chicago Cubs. This was one of the most underwhelming trade deadlines of all time. They traded Mike Kincaid for Bill Pulsifer. Yippity freaking doodah. They brought back Pulse, except he wasn't any good. At that point, he was like a left-handed reliever. They traded for Tony Phillips who I remember being sort of excited about. Like, ah, Tony Phillips, big on base guy, lead him off, steal a few bases. Little did I realize over the next month and a half, I still have visions of Tony Phillips striking out looking against like Greg Maddox the final weekend of the year. Little did I know that Tony Phillips was completely toast and would suck for the next month and a half as a New York Met. And then they traded Bernard Gilkey and Nelson Figueroa, believe that, as a prospect. 
for Jorge Fabregas and Willie Blair. And my only memory of Willie Blair is him giving up a home run to Mark McGuire, I think. Uh, doubleheader, Shea Stadium. It may have been his 50th home run, and I think it may have been the one that went off that right center field scoreboard. So that trade deadline sucked, and obviously the Mets collapsed down the stretch of the year. They lost their last five games to the Expos and the Braves, and it all went to craps. This is a weird one. 1999. And I'm going to get crap for saying this, but I got to be honest. They traded Terrence Long, who turned out to be a solid major leaguer, for Kenny Rogers. Before we get nuts, Kenny Rogers was awesome for the New York Mets over the last two months of the year. It's a true story. Like Kenny Rogers came here and was very, very good. And remember, at this point, this was right after he was a New York Yankee, so he had already experienced the Kenny Rogers disaster in New York City. But he was actually pretty good. The problem for Kenny... And as time has gone by, I've really much apologized for this. For a while, Kenny Rogers became the picture to losing to the Braves in the NLCS in 1999 because he walked Andrew Jones. And yes, just throw the freaking ball down the middle, let Andrew Jones hit a grand slam for all I care. You can't lose a series on a walk. But when you really think about that game and that series against Atlanta in 1999, it was not Kenny Rogers. I'm sorry. Armando Benitez blew a lead in the 10th inning. He's the one who gave up a base hit to Ozzie Guillen. John Franco blew a lead in the 8th inning. He's the one that gave up a hit to Brian Hunter. Al Leiter is the one that didn't record an out in Game 6. So as time has gone by, I have sort of forgiven Kenny Rogers for the failure of walking Andrew Jones in Game 6. Because the truth is, he was a good Met during the regular season. But here's an underrated one. Very underrated trade. And these are the ones that sometimes are the biggest. Keep that in mind when we talk about the deadline in a little bit. They traded Craig Paquette for a washed-up Sean Dunstan. How great was that? Sean Dunstan was a key piece off the bench, had the at-bat of the year, to start the rally right before the Robin Ventura Grand Slam single in the rain. Dunstan kept fouling freaking pitches off and then ground ball right center field base hit. Very underrated, good depth deal when they made that trade. All right, here's an all-time bad one, all right? This is a bad, this is a bad one, I'm warning you. Jason Isringhausen, who would go on and have a very good career as a closer, and Greg McMichael, who gives a crap, for Billy Taylor. Billy Taylor. Much like Mel Rojas, another piece of crap that came over here and sucked out of the bullpen. He was so bad. I don't even think they used him in the postseason. I think he was just bad for a month. And then the Mets realized, what the hell are we doing with ourselves? It is a waste of time. The other one that wasn't bad is they traded Brian McRae, Rigo Beltran, and Tom Johnson for Daryl Hamilton and Chuck McElroy. Hamilton was a good Met. Had a bunch of clutch hits during that run in 99 and 2000. Greg McElroy sucked. I think of him as a little lefty with glasses on. Uh, you looked at him and said, how's he getting anybody out? But Hamilton turned out to be a good Met. So you look at that trade deadline, it actually wasn't bad. Kenny Rogers, good Met for two months. Sean Dunstan, key piece out of the bullpen. The big mistake was Isring Hudson for Billy Taylor. If you could just take that one out, it was a fine trade deadline in 1999. Now let's get to 2000, because this one also very, very complicated. Ray Ordonez got hurt. And say what you want about Ray's bat. Ray was a part of one of the great defensive infields we ever saw in 1999. Obviously, this is 2000. John Olerud's out. Todd Zeal's sort of learning for a space. Still a very good defensive infield. Not as good as it was a year earlier, but Ray Ordonez being out for the year was a killer. And Steve Phillips made a monumental mistake. He didn't trust Melvin Moore. 
He didn't. He basically said, we can't win with Melvin Mora at shortstop. Now, as we know, Melvin Mora was a postseason hero a year earlier in 1999. He was great during that series against Atlanta. Defensive plays, getting big hits. He was unbelievable. And would actually go on and have a very solid career for the Baltimore Orioles. But Steve Phillips flat out didn't trust the young player on his roster. So he packaged him up. He packaged Mike Kincaid up. He packaged uh, Pat Gorman and somebody called Leslie Bray and traded for Mike Bordick. And look, Mike Bordick had a home run in his first at-bat as a Met, but I still think back to the Luis Soho base hit against Al Leiter, and I wonder if they had a competent defensive shortstop, if Ray Ordonez was out there, do they make that play? So Mike Bordick was a blah Met. Then he's gone at the end of the year. Then he goes back to Baltimore. But really, it wasn't about Mike Bordick more than it was about not trusting the guy you had on your roster. And the guy you had on your roster was Melvin Mora. And look what he turned out to become. Look what he turned into. Incredible. Incredible. Then you've got Paul Wilson and Jason Tyner. (laughs) I love hearing about the... I don't want to say I love. It's depressing hearing about how the big three-generation K era ended. Pulsifer's traded, Isringhausen's traded, and now Paul Wilson is traded with Jason Tyner for Rick White, who is a solid reliever, and Bubba Trammell. Whatever. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. But the one trade that no one remembers that I do need to bring up Because on August 30th, 2000, with the New York Mets in first place, they made a very minor trade. Are you ready for this one? I I knew this guy was a Met, but I forgot the specifics of it. The New York Mets acquired an infielder by the name of Jorge Valendia. And in exchange for Jorge Valendia, they traded a very young prospect named Nelson Cruz. So as we sit here... 22 years later, 22 years later, the New York Mets may acquire a guy they traded 22 years ago, Nelson Cruz. You are right, Pete? Dude, if Nelson Cruz comes and met 22 years later full circle, I don't know if I'm happy about that, by the way. I mean, it's amazing, <laughs> but it's at this point in time, he, that's my boy. I can't justify getting a tr- uh, Nelson Cruz on this team at this point in time. We will touch on Nelson Cruz later when we attack the big board of trade targets because he's an obvious name that would be out there. But it's a weird one. It's one of those weird buried trades from 2000 that nobody thinks about. But they add Nelson Cruz and they traded him for Jorge Valendia. 
2001 was weird because the Mets at the deadline were 10 games under 500. They were 11 and a half games out of first place. They were actually closer to first place than they were the wild card that year. And as you recall, the Mets went on a furious run through August and September after 9-11 where they got within, if memory serves correct, they were within two games of first place. And they had a chance to sweep the Atlanta Braves that weekend. They returned to playing baseball in New York after September 11th. We all remember the Piazza home run from Friday. They won Saturday, and then they blew the game on Sunday and then did the same thing the following week in Atlanta. So it was weird. They were selling at the trade deadline. They sold Turk Wendell and Dennis Cook to the Philadelphia Phillies. And then they made a weird trade, I remember, where they dealt Rick Reed, one of my all-time favorites, to Minnesota for Matt Lawton. So it wasn't really selling, wasn't really buying. I think the Mets were very confused about where they were a year after winning the National League pennant. But here's an, a trade deadline where I remember where I was. I was at a Rundle Mills Mall in Maryland in 2004. I was about to leave Maryland. I had lived there for a few years. And my dad called me up. And he said, son, the Mets have made two trades. And I said, two trades? What are we doing here? We suck. We're not any good. Or a bunch of games out of first place. What, 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 are we selling somebody? And what the hell are we selling? And that was a day I would never forget. The New York Mets traded Scott Casimir to the Tampa Bay Devil Rays for Bartolome Fortunato and Victor Zambrano. A trade that still all these years later lives in Met infamy. But we do have to admit, it's not like Scott Casimir turned into Sandy Koufax. So I think we all have to accept that while... At the time, we were disgusted by the trade. And for the next four or five years, we were disgusted by the trade. Much like what may be the case off with Kelnick, the guy we gave up that we all feared would be this next superstar really didn't turn out to be that. I, I mean, he didn't turn out to be Nolan Ryan, but he had a nice career. And let's be, to be honest, the biggest thing was, what did Victor Zambrano do for the Mets? Nada. Nada. <laughs> No, I know, I know. I, I can't talk myself into ever liking this trade, that's for sure. Because then you could argue, well, they could have traded Casimir for something else. Like, if you didn't believe in him, and John Franco and Al Leiter hated him because he changed the stereo once in spring training, you could have gotten more than Victor Zambrano. My biggest memory of Victor Zambrano, I have two memories. Number one, running off the mound with a shoulder injury. And number two, he lived in the same apartment building I lived in. And at that time, I used to work nights, so I would DVR every Met game. So I got home one night, Mets are on DVR, and Zambrano's in the elevator. And I look at him and I say, this is going to be weird, but I DVR'd the game. So please don't tell me what happened. And he looked at me like I had 30 heads. I was like, what, what the hell just happened? <laughs> DVR? What? <laughs> I think he was confused. Maybe it wasn't Victor Zambrano. Maybe that was the, the, the real <laughs> twist on the whole thing. <laughs> the, the, the other trade they made that day was Ty Wigginton... And yes, a prospect by the name of Jose Bautista went to the Pirates for Chris Benson and Jeff Kepinger. Kepinger was a nice solid Met for a while till they got rid of him. And Chris Benson is mostly famous for his wife. Let's, let's be fair about that. No one thinks about Chris Benson. Now, that was a weird trade deadline because they sucked. Those moves were kind of like we're going for it moves. And they all really turned out to be complete disasters. Not necessarily trading Wigginton, because at that point they had called up David Wright. David Wright was the third baseman. I think we all understood his time was over. But here's the trade deadline that I still have regrets about. And that's 2006. Because in 2006, the New York Mets were the best team in the National League. By a lot. Not by a little bit, by a lot. 
You know, you give me the Padres, give me the Cardinals, whoever the hell you want to bring up. Nobody was any good in the National League that year besides the New York Mets. And Duan or Sanchez getting into a car accident, which was bad enough. I mean, obviously we're happy he's okay, but he missed the rest of the season, ripped up his shoulder. That was bad enough, but I felt like the Mets made the cardinal mistake of trade deadlines. And I touched on this earlier. And that is taking somebody off of your roster and moving that guy at the deadline. I think it is a huge mistake. The A's did that years ago with Yoenis Cespedes, where I think they were in the midst of a race and they traded Yoenis Cespedes. That may have been the John Lester trade uh, for some reason. I kind of remember it working out that way, where the A's were in first place or they're in the wild card and they took their cleanup hitter and traded him at the deadline. You can't do that. And the Mets took Xavier Nady, who was a part of that team. I'm not saying he was the key to the team, but he was a part of that team. And they traded him to the Pittsburgh Pirates for Roberto Hernandez and Oliver Perez. And obviously getting Oliver Perez was very, very important. And really, pound for pound, turned out to actually not be a bad trade because Perez pitched Game 7 against the Cardinals, was bailed out by the Andy Chavez catch, but did a hell of a job. I don't think any of us thought Oliver Perez was going to need to make postseason starts, but because of the injuries to El Duque, the injury to Pedro Martinez... They needed Oliver Perez. And as much as we may have bad memories about Ali now, we have to be fair. He was good late 2006. And then he was really good in 2007 to the point where the Mets obviously had to re-sign him. So it's it's not a knock on what Perez did for the Mets in 06 or even Hernandez did for the Mets in 06. It was that I am dead set against, and let this be a lesson for this trade deadline. You can't take guys off of your roster who are part of your team and move them in a trade deadline deal. It needs to be exclusively prospects. And the Mets obviously didn't do that with that trade. They also traded for Sean Green after July 31st. Green ended up becoming like their everyday right fielder. It is what it is. 2007, as they were collapsing, they desperately traded for Luis Ayala and said, you're our closer because everybody else is hurt. In 2000, uh, actually, that was 2008. In 2007, they traded for Luis Castillo. They traded Drew Butera and Dustin Martin for a washed-up Luis Castillo, and obviously our memories of Luis Castillo was that he was fat, was sucked, and dropped the pop-up against the New York Yankees in 2009. Then we take a respite from the trade deadline, Hoff, because the Mets sucked for seven years. They were terrible in 9, 10, 11, 12. They had a good selling trade deadline when they dealt Carlos Beltran to the San Francisco Giants for Zach Wheeler, so they had a couple of good sales, a couple of good, hey, let's uh, shift them off. But in 2015, we have, without question, in this era of 25 years, I'm not talking about Keith Hernandez, I'm not talking about Don Clendenin, I'm talking about the last 25 years. Far and away, it's not even close, the greatest trade deadline deal in the history of this franchise, and that was Luis Sessa and Michael Fulmer for Yoannis Espinas. There is no deadline deal, it's not even close, that can rival the impact of that trade. A trade that nearly didn't happen because they almost got Carlos Gomez two nights earlier and Wilmer Flores was crying. And I was crying. I was disappointed. I wanted Carlos Gomez. Obviously, once that whole thing fell through, they needed to make this trade for Yoannis Cespedes. Little did I know, maybe Pete, you were more confident, little did I know the impact that Yoannis would have over the next two months because without that trade, not only do they not go to the World Series, I don't think they win the National League East. No, I don't disagree, but I... It's funny because I was high on Cespedes. I was a Cespedes guy. You look at Gomez and that. By the way, I was at that game too. I'm sure you were too, that the game where Phil Flores was crying. And just the whole atmosphere was so weird. It was just a very odd vibe. But that being said, though, 
Goldmas was somebody I was dead set not to be a part of because I think Wheeler was involved in the trade, which ended up being the reason why it didn't get done because of injury right. concern. But Cespedes, I was so high on. So that was like, uh, I think it came, the news came just after 4 o'clock, if I'm correct. So, yes, Joe and I were doing a show from Giants Camp. Great booking by our old boss, Mark Chernoff, to have us do a Giants show on July 31st. But nevertheless, as we were talking to Odell Beckham Jr., I refreshed Twitter, and it was right at the deadline. You're 100% right. I got the update. The Mets have acquired Yoenis Cespedes, and there was a sense of relief. Because I think for Joe and I and for a lot of Mets fans, even though they had just traded for Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, which, yeah, we can mention that. That was a good deal. For us, it felt like they had added, you know, two guys from Murderer's Row because the Met lineup was so bad that year. John Mayberry hitting cleanup that when they get Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe for John Gant and Robert Wallen, we're all celebrating. But they needed to make that trade. They needed to make any kind of trade before the deadline. And they just got that one in by a second. They obviously won that night. That was the Wilmer Flores home run walk-off against the Nationals night. And the Mets, they, they took off. And they absolutely took off. And Cespedes was incredible. And I think when we judge that trade, you can only judge what Yoenis did for the next two and a half months, not the fact that they re-signed him twice. Because it's irrelevant. It was a trade deadline deal where at the time, I remember using this phrasing on the air, just remember, Met fans, this is what I said, we are not marrying Yoenis. We're just going to have a great one-night stand for a couple of months. And little did I know that we did marry him because the Mets signed him twice. First to that creative three-year opt-out after one-year contract, which was important because he was a big part of the team in 2016, no doubt. And then the mega contract in 2017 that obviously ended terribly. He barely played. He gets run over by a bull. He leaves in the middle of the COVID season. Like, it was just, it was a disaster. But that trade, and it's not close. I mean, you just heard all the trades that they made at the deadline. You heard the whole list. It's not even close. It's the greatest trade deadline deal they've made in the last 25 years. Obviously, Clendenin, Keith Hernandez, those are going to come ahead because of the long-lasting impacts. They won a championship in 69. Uh, Keith Hernandez turning the franchise around, all that, completely fair. But in the sake of the last 25 years, it's as good as it gets. They followed it up the next year by trading Dilson Herrera for Jay Bruce. And Jay Bruce then went on and just was terrible for two months. He was good the following year when the team sucked. But he was terrible in 2016. And then the other one I put in there, this is really the last trade deadline deal. I guess we could include last year, but I've kind of moved off 2021. We got to give it more time. Pete Crow Armstrong for Javi Baez was trading for Marcus Stroman, which was odd because the Mets were sort of in it in 2019. They went on a run to get close. They had that big series against the Nationals where Todd Frazier at the great home run. But they trade Anthony Kay and Simeon uh, Woods Richardson for Marcus Stroman. Another one of those... We're trading for a guy, we're sort of in it, but it's really for next year too, which turned out to be 2021 because of the COVID season in 2020. So that's, those are your deals over the last 25 years. And as we sit here today and we look ahead to what the Mets are going to do before this trade deadline, it does have to make you pause about how crappy most of our trade deadlines have been. I mean, think about it. Cespedes is on another level. But most of these trade deadline deals in the rare year where the Mets have been good and have bought, there aren't a lot, Pete, that you look back on with such a, a romantic eye towards. There's no. not a lot of good here. And the problem is, too, is that the Mets seem to then double down on their mistake. It's like, okay, we went and got somebody, brought them in you know, for like a rental, and then they go, well, you know what? 
he wasn't so bad, so let's sign him to a four-year deal. Ali Perez, Luis Castillo. I mean, you go down the list of people that are like, oh, well, bring him back again. He did great for, like, the two months rental. And that's the problem. And that's what worries me and concern of what type of piece are the Mets looking to get right now and what what does it mean for the future of this team? Are they looking for the well, rental? Are they looking for someone that they can have for three or four years? So now keep this in mind. As much as I may say to you, Pete, there isn't, there aren't that many great deals they've made in the last 25 years. The Nelson Cruz thing I throw to the side because he, I don't think he was a big prospect at the time, and it was for Jorge Valendi. It was not a high-profile trade deadline deal. The Mets haven't given up a lot of prospects that turned out to be amazing. Like, the biggest names on that list of guys that turned out to be good are the ones that almost happened accidentally with Nelson Cruz and Jose Batista. They, they were forgotten about guys. They were not exactly big prospects. So as much as I may be a prospect hugger, and I think all of us to a different degree may love our prospects and say, oh my God, I can't trade this guy, I can't trade that guy. More times than not, and it's not just Met history, it's baseball history. More times than not, the guys that you fantasize about don't turn out to be nearly as good as we project. So I want to be smart at this trade deadline. I'm not trading Francisco Alvarez for anybody. But, well, Juan Soto, yes, but outside of that, I'm not trading Francisco Alvarez for anybody. But I also want to toe the line of understanding that you've got to give up something to get something. And the odds of these guys turning out to be superstars that haunt us for the next decade and a half, it's not that high. It really isn't, especially when you look at the deadline over the last 25 years. So... But, but on that note, though, that, and this is where I'm saying, like, I don't disagree with that point. Like, the, what they've given up never turns into anything. But I feel like it makes it worse when they're like, well, because we gave up this piece, now we have to sign this guy like, and commit to Luis Castillo or those type of players. It's like, you don't have to do that either. No. Just because you trade, no, 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 you no, have no, to no, commit. No. no, look, I made a list of guys. A lot of them are free agents. A lot of them have maybe another year or two of control you're making a deal right now, though, for right now, for this moment, for the moment of the Mets have an obvious need at DH, the Mets have, have an obvious need for bullpen help. This is a team that may look very different next year. They've got a lot of key free agents, and it's not something I want to think about too much right now, but Edwin Diaz, Brandon Nimmo, Jacob DeGrom can all be free agents. It's just, it is what it is. Chris Bassett could be a free agent. Taiwan Walker could be a free agent. Carlos Carrasco could be a free agent. The entire bullpen, literally, the entire bullpen outside of Drew Smith will be free agents at the end of the year. And that's actually so, pretty positive for us. Get them all the hell out of here. <laughs> Besides this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
With that said, let's start with the bullpen. I think those are the that's actually the more boring part because I think the the bats are always going to be sexier than bullpen arms, some of which guys you may not have heard of, you know, six months ago. So here's my big list of bullpen arms. All right. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. Number one, we'll start with the obvious. David Robertson. Uh, we just watched him for Chicago. He's 37, 38 years old. So he ain't young. He's not making a ton of money. He is having a really, really good season. He's a guy that we know can handle New York. He's a guy that we know can shift back into a seventh or eighth inning role. I'm all good with David Robertson. What should the price tag be for a reliever? Look, I don't think there's any reliever out there where I would be giving up top-end, top-shelf prospects. Uh, I don't think there's any reliever, maybe outside of Bednar of Pittsburgh, where I would even consider that. Bednar's a little different because, A, I think he's better than everybody else, and you've got team control over him. David Robertson is a guy who's a rental. You know, he's Tyler Clippard from a few years ago. He's, I don't want to say Billy Taylor or Mel Rojas because those are bad examples, but Addison Reed of a couple of years ago. Uh, no issue with going after David Robertson. It's a good addition. I think he's clearly going to be traded, Pete, being on a team like the Chicago Cubs. There's absolutely no reason to keep him. So David Robertson, I, you'd agree with me, is a good get if the Mets could go get him? I think he's one of the better ones, and he's proven he could do it in New York. And right now he's having a hell of a season, so that, that I definitely would double down on for sure. All right, number two. I think you have this guy on your fantasy team, so you're probably going to be very familiar with his ups and downs. And that is former New York Met prospect, a guy we mentioned earlier on in this podcast, and that's Michael Fulmer, who had the injury a couple of years ago, came back as a starter. They quickly realized, wait a second, Michael Fulmer's career as a starting pitcher is over at age 27. They moved him to the bullpen last year. He's been pitching as the middleman in that bullpen this year with Soto as the closer. Uh, he's still relatively young. He is a free agent, I think, at the end of this season. So it's another sort of rental. You would have to think the Tigers are moving him. I mean, you're not building around a bullpen arm, especially when you got Soto. Michael Fulmer of the Detroit Tigers. You're all in on him? Uh, that was my number one choice, actually. I like Robertson, but... but number Fulmer, one? Fulmer's the guy... Oh, no question, because he's one of those guys. And this is what I like about him. He's younger than Robertson, but he's versatile. He doesn't have to come in in the eighth, seventh, ninth. He can come in at any inning that you ask him to. It's, it's best time, best availability... He goes in, and he put, he's been put up a great season this year, and I love him out of the bullpen. So, interesting thing on Michael Fulmer to keep an eye on. Obviously, the Mets only have one lefty out of their bullpen, Joely Rodriguez, who hasn't exactly dominated lefties. His splits have been more... I haven't checked them in a while, but last check, they were sort of backwards. Michael Fulmer has extreme splits. Now, it doesn't help the whole the Mets need a lefty idea. Michael Fulmer has been hell on right-handed hitters. Right-handed hitters this year against Michael Fulmer are hitting 097 with a 312 OPS. That's absurd. I mean, that's elite-level best reliever in baseball. Lefties have hit him, though. 283 average, 853 OPS. So you've got extreme extreme splits with Michael Fulmer. He's been nightmarish against right-handed hitters. But Michael Fulmer, clearly a guy I think the Tigers would trade with him being a free agent at the end of the year, having a solid year, fits right into that 7th, 8th inning mold. I'm going to throw something creative at you. Because I don't know how many people have mentioned this. If someone has, I apologize. Noah Syndergaard. And I want you to hear me out on this. Noah Syndergaard accomplishes two things. Forget about his time here, and I don't think any of, that's, any of that crap matters. All right, What I think about him, what Met fans think about him, it's irrelevant. We're talking about a, a body, a human. 
Noah Syndergaard has had a very average season. He got off to a good start, had a couple of really bad starts. Overall, his numbers are pedestrian. You get Noah Syndergaard right now, he's a depth arm. You know, Jacob deGrom's out, Jacob deGrom's back, you know, Tyler McGill never comes back. Uh Uh-oh, Chris Bassett's hurt. He can give you depth in the rotation, but that's not why I'm trading for him. I remember what he did in 2015 out of the bullpen. And I wonder, a year removed, a year and a half removed now from Tommy John, could Noah Syndergaard be a viable weapon? Will you tell Noah, I'm asking for three outs, kid. I'm asking for four outs. I'm asking for you to come out of this bullpen with that beautiful blonde hair flopping all over the place. And I'm asking you to dominate for 30 pitches. For 25 pitches. We saw Noah do it out of the bullpen in 2015, including that game five in LA. Why not? Why the hell not? He accomplishes two things if you're the New York Mets, as opposed to all these other relievers. If you do have issues in the rotation, he's a guy. And he's not a terrible guy. I mean, he's not the worst depth guy you could acquire. So number one, if you need him in the short term to start, that's fine. But obviously in the postseason, he's not starting in the postseason. I'm no. throwing him in that bullpen. What do no. you think of that? And, and, and it's funny because we talked about that for a long time. I we used to get phone calls with Diaz was terrible. It's like, how about you make uh, Noah Syndergaard the closer? You know, that was something that was thrown out there just because he was so unhealthy and he was not able to sustain the, the length of a full season. It's not a bad idea. I feel like the time. It's one of those things where it's like out of sight, out of mind. Like Conforto done, moving on with it. You don't need to bring him back. But if it's good, it, it could work. So I'm open to the idea. He's not on the top of my list, though. He's not. I sold you. I sold you. Because as, as soon as I, <laughs> as soon as I said his name, you were shaking your head. Like, ah, it's a terrible idea. All right, I'll go real quick with some of these guys. Andrew Chafin, lefty Detroit Tigers. Remember the Mets were going after him during the offseason. I think they do need to add a left-handed reliever. Joely Rodriguez isn't going to cut it. The guy who's had a great year is this Kyle Nelson of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Again, where the hell's Arizona going? He's been lethal against lefties. He's only 26 years old, has a 180 RA. Andrew Puck of the Oakland A's. We know the Oakland A's are going to sell. AJ Puck's a nice little left-handed target. Uh, I don't know if the Tigers trade Soto. I mentioned Soto earlier. Gregory Soto, the Detroit Tigers. He's been their closer. I I wonder, because of his age, he's still 26 years old. He's not a free agent at the end of the year if Detroit would move off of him. But I think guys who are free agents at the end of the year, like Fulmer, like Chafin, make a little bit more sense. But I wrote Soto down as well. Some of the other relievers, Daniel Bard is interesting, but he kind of scares me. He's 37 years old. His peripherals are not that great, despite having a 202 ERA. I know he's done it in Colorado, but they acquire him. It's an upgrade, but I'd be nervous. Alex Colome, same way. He's got good numbers against lefties, so he's got the reverse splits going on out of Colorado. I saw Colome look so bad for the first two months of last year. I could see that same thing happening. I like Jorge Lopez of the Orioles, but as we'll discuss later with Trey Mancini, can the Orioles really sell? I, I, I hesitate on that. Now, if they are selling great, that, that's fine. I just really wonder. The, think about every other name I've mentioned. The Detroit Tigers, the Chicago Cubs, the Angels, the Tigers, the Pirates, the Diamondbacks. I mean, these are clear sellers. I don't want to waste our time, Pete, on teams that are not selling. Like, oh, the Red Sox. The Red Sox aren't selling. And I wonder where the Orioles are. I lived down there for a few years. I kind of have a warm spot for the Orioles. It would be a disgrace, a, a disgrace if the Baltimore Orioles were selling. I got to tell you, they're right there in the wild card race. So I mentioned Lopez's name mainly because I wrote it down three weeks ago before he before the Orioles went on the winning streak. Uh, 
I don't know, man. Listen, if the, if the Red know. Sox if the Red Sox aren't selling, then the Orioles shouldn't sell either. That's that's the way I look at it right now. The only difference is the Orioles have pathetic ownership, and they have always kind of had this loser mentality down there. I mentioned David Bednar of the Pittsburgh Pirates. He'd be, I think, the of all the relievers that became available. To me, Bednar would be number one on my list if he is available, and I think the price tag may be high. And I wouldn't touch Mark Melanson with a 50-foot pole. I think he sucks. I think he's done, and I think he sucks. Have I missed any relievers, Pete? All right, so I have a few. I'll name two off the top. They're both lefties. They're both from Texas. One is an old starting pitcher who's turned into a relief pitcher who's been doing all right, Matt Moore. If you look at his numbers, they've been solid. He's got a very low ERA. I don't know how comfortable I am with him, but he's not a starting pitcher. He's a relief pitcher now, and it right. seems like he's doing okay. And again, it's a very cheap deal. I think it's a minor league deal that they signed him to. So he's performing at a high rate. He's going to be cheap. I know that we don't want to go cheap, but the other guy on the Texas Rangers who I don't think they'll get, but Brock Burke is mm-hmm. is phenomenal. I think it's like a low one ERA, 49 strikeouts, like 11 walks in 40-something innings. 25 years old. He's not a free agent until 2027, so that's probably not going to happen. But I would think if they could find a way to steal something like that, like that, that's a piece that you could build upon for a while in the bullpen. And then there's one other that free agent 2024, Chicago White Sox. I'm not sure if they sell mode what they're at, but Ronaldo Lopez is having a great season out of the bullpen. I, I think yeah. that's something you got to look at. So a couple of things. Matt Moore is interesting because it looks like maybe he's found himself now as a reliever. He's another one of those guys that have reverse splits, which is not, by the way, the end of the world. We don't live in a loogie era anymore in which, boy, you better shut down lefties. You're going to have to get righties out too. That's just the world we live in. But I did notice Matt Moore when I looked it up a while ago that he had reverse splits where lefties were actually hitting him better. I wonder about Texas because Texas was the one team I got to. And despite being eight games under 500 despite being eight games out of a playoff spot, they have all the makings of a team where I agree they're out of it. They're going to sell. I don't know about them. I, I think their mentality after they signed Seager, after they signed Simeon, you're going to hear their name mentioned a lot with Juan Soto. I just wonder if Texas is selling. They may be like close enough, even though they're not particularly close. I mean, they're eight games out of a playoff spot that I don't know if they're necessarily going to sell. And I'd be surprised if they traded Burke because of his youth, like you mentioned. I think if they're going to sell, you're more likely to deal a guy who's probably gone at the end of the year in Matt Moore. And the White Sox are also fascinating because they're right at 500. They are literally two games back in the loss column in the American League Central. Considering how high their expectations were coming into this season. Because I've been back and forth on Jose Abreu, another guy who would make a lot of sense from Chicago. I just can't see the White Sox that close to first place selling. I know they did the white flag trades many, many years ago. But in this era we live in, where so many teams make the playoffs, and they're right there, and they had championship expectations coming into the season. I think they were my team to get to the ALCS or whatever the hell I said about them. I look like an idiot with them, and that's fine. <laughs> I don't really care at the end of the day. I, I doubt they'll start the sell-off. I doubt that. Well, listen, if now, the Rooster keeps on walking people after he throws a first pitch and then gives them full walks on four. Like, have you seen the Rooster's thing? He, like, throws him a first pitch, it's a strike, and then decides to, to intentionally walk him. Like, Tony La Russa, if his name wasn't Tony La Russa, would have been fired two months ago. Exactly. And, I mean, that's a mistake by Jerry Reinsdorf's part. That's his deal. You know, screw him. Not our problem. But I think his friendship and his love and respect and admiration for Tony La Russa 
has kind of affected what they should have done. What they should have done is what the Philadelphia Phillies did. That's what they should have done. They would have said, hey, let's fire the manager and maybe this team gets going. Now let's get to the bats, all right? Because this team clearly needs to add a bat. Who the hell's kidding ourselves? Dom Smith, J.D. Davis, not the answer at DH. What I do find enjoyable about this exercise, because they need a DH, not a left fielder, not a first baseman, not a third baseman, you really can open this up to anybody. Because I'm not married to a position. I mean, if the guy could play first base, great. Give Pete Alonso a day off. If the guy could play third base, great. Eduardo Escobar has been streaky this year. If the guy can play left field, okay, great. To me, it doesn't really matter where the guy plays defensively as long as he can hit. So we'll start with the obvious Josh Bell. Uh, He's having a great year for the Washington Nationals. He's hitting over 300. He's got 13 home runs, switch hitter. Uh, I think his numbers are a lot better right-handed, which is actually good for a team in the Mets that have struggled against left-handed pitching. I think the price will be high, even though he's a free agent at the end of the year, mainly because he's one of the better bats available. The appealing part of Nelson Cruz is that you have to think he's cheap. And keep this in mind about Cruz. When you see his numbers and you see 248 home runs, 48 RBIs, his numbers in April were so bad that if you just looked at May, June, and July, and he struggled in July, I admit that, but if you look at those three months, you're going to see a very different baseball player, very different view. And he obviously is strictly a DH at this point in his career, and he's not going to cost you a lot. I just can't imagine it's costing much of a prospect. Uh, One idea around Bell, I know this has been linked to Soto now a lot too, is the idea of taking back Patrick Corbin, taking back Steven Strasburg. I know Steve Cohen's got money, and so using money as a weapon seems like a great idea. The problem is Corbin's contract is so stupid for the next two years. He's making $25 million next year and $35 million the year after that. I just fear at some point Cohen's going to have a budget. I don't know what it is. It's probably going to be very, very high. And do you really want to be stuck paying Patrick Corbin $35 million when you can give a better prospect up, as much as I hate to give up prospects, and not have to be saddled with $35 million on Corbin? It's one thing if you're taking Soto back. You're taking Juan Soto back, you're going to do a lot of stupid things, and you're going to like it because it's Juan Soto. But when it comes to Josh Bell or Nelson Cruz, I have a tougher time rationalizing that. And one other thing to keep in mind, and I do think this is relevant, despite the fact the Nationals have been mostly good. The New York Mets and the Washington Nationals do not make trades. The history backs me up on this. They don't. They don't make a lot of trades. The last time they made a trade, and I wouldn't even count it, is when the Mets sold them Matt Reynolds for a few hundred thousand dollars. Let's not count that. Okay, let's go back earlier. The last time they made a trade before that is when they acquired Jerry Blevins right before opening day. We're talking about minor, minor deals. You want to go back before that? You probably have the whole Brian Schneider, Ryan Church trade. So the Nationals and Mets, and and I don't know if it's a Mike Rizzo thing, but they don't make trades together. So forget Juan Soto. We're not going to spend that much time on that. You'll hear that everywhere else. I'm skeptical that the Mets and the Nationals are going to make deals together. They haven't over years past. Granted, the situations have been different. But I think Mike Rizzo freaking hates the Mets. And I think, yeah, he may say, I'll trade you Nelson Cruz, but he may require more from the Mets than he may need from, I don't know, the freaking St. Louis Cardinals. Just keep that in mind. Uh, My number one guy offensively that I would love for this team to go get is C.J. Crone of the Colorado Rockies. He is signed past this year, 
which could cause the Rockies to not want to trade him. He's on one of the more affordable deals in the world. He's only making $7 million a year. He's having a monster, monster season. I know there are splits that show, hey, hasn't been the same player on the road. I get that. We're always going to get that with Colorado players. I'm not as afraid of that. To me, when you look at the production he's had this year, the power numbers that he has supplied, and the fact that it's not a pure rental, you have him next year, too, to slot in at DH and give Pete Alonso some days off, that would be the guy to go get. But I'm skeptical the Rockies trade him. The Rockies have held on to guys in the past. We saw that just a year ago with what's-his-name, with uh, Trevor Story. And the price tag may be high because he assigned to another year at $7.5 million. But CJ's got 21 home runs. He's driven in close to 70 runs this year. When you look at production, he's one of the best guys out there. They could get Mike Moustakis for nothing. The problem is Mike Moustakis looks cooked. He looks absolutely cooked. He's got another year where he's making big money. You may be able to get him and get something else because the Reds may be so desperate for you to take that contract. So you could get Diaz, Edwin's brother, possibly as a throw-in. Hey, just take him. So you could take the Moustakis contract. You can certainly attach it to Luis Castillo if you want. Look, I like Luis Castillo. I don't love the idea of giving up top prospects for a pitcher right now because I don't think that's their number one need. Their number one need is a bat. And yeah, you got a lot of free agents in this staff. I understand that. You could lock in Castillo into this rotation for the next bunch of years. But I don't know. I, I, I don't love the idea of necessarily going out and trading top prospects for a pitcher. That's just me. You disagree with me on that, Hoff? Uh, I don't disagree. There's one pitcher that I would make a move for that I think he's got an option next year, but I think he's having such an excelled season that he'll definitely opt out. However, again, we don't know if the Giants are looking to what they're doing. You know, the Giants are in the mix right now. You know, I'm hoping for like an eight-game losing streak and they have to sell really quickly because I, I think that... Um, I had him right in front of me now. But Carlos Rodon is having an amazing season. And Jock Peterson is somebody that I'd like to find a way to combo those two together. Well, that, listen, that's the guy I'm thinking about. Because to me, Jock Peterson, if the Giants deal him, he's on a one-year deal. He's got like an 850 OPS. He tortured the Mets, as we remember, not too long ago. Big part of the postseason run a year ago. The Giant thing's weird, though. You touched on it, man. They're in it. They're in a pennant race. Are they going to turn around and start selling off the free agents they just acquired? Maybe because they were free agents they just acquired, and Peterson and Rodone, they, they have less of attachment to saying, ah, you know what, let's cash out and get a few prospects for those guys. Peterson would be outstanding. One year left on his deal, a big, hulking slugger that he's become. The only thing that concerns me is that Tommy Pham slaps him in the face, and he's like, sure, whatever, no big deal. I, I deserved it. I mean, give me a freaking break. But yeah, I think the Giants are a very interesting team to keep an eye on. They are in it right now, but we don't know what, really what their mindset is. Uh, Charlie Blackman, he's having an average season. There's a $10 million player on option on him next year. Another one of those guys, I'm not overly concerned about being away from Coors Field. I can't imagine he's going to cost a lot because of the money that he makes, so that may scare some teams off in terms of what they have to owe him. But Blackman's a guy. And how about this one? I'm intrigued by this one. The only negative is he's not a free agent for a long time. So there may not be a rush for the Diamondbacks to trade him. And that's Christian Walker of the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's got big splits against lefties. He's at 22 home runs. Don't be scared off by the average. He's hitting 204. I get it. But he's got almost an 800 OPS. I think he's uh, running to the J.D. Davis syndrome. where he said a lot of balls hard. 
So his average should come up with some better luck. But he is signed, or at least team control of him, until 2025. But he's 31 years old. So if you're the Diamondbacks, like, you're really attached to him that much? He's making no money. I, so, I mean, yeah, Christian Walker, that's someone that I circled and then crossed off very quickly. But why? You, well, because, again, I just I feel like he's always been this like Joey Gallo-esque player. He'll hit you a ton of home runs. They can use that. I understand, but there's a lot of guys like you, and there's other guys cheaper, like a Daniel Vogelbach. I can't stand him in Pittsburgh. I mean, he's someone that he had a 30 home run year once. He has that potential. He's a big lefty at bat. He's got no one in Pittsburgh to really bat around him, so he's not getting that many opportunities. But he could do the same thing, just as effective, and with a, in a Mets lineup could be better. All right. No, Vogelbach was a guy I was keeping an eye on, too, with Pittsburgh. I guess I prefer a right-hander, but I understand it. Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs. Another one, he's got one more year of arbitration eligibility, so he got one more year of team control. Switch hitter, pounds left-handed pitching. Not the prototypical slugger slugger that maybe I'd want, but he's had a very solid year. Garrett Cooper of the Miami Marlins, another guy, though he's under team control for a couple more years. Uh, Hunter Dozier of the Kansas City Royals, which I'm sure the Mets would love him because of the versatility. He plays third base. He plays first base. He plays outfield. There's an option next year at, I think it's like $10 million. Yeah, his numbers don't jump out at you, but he's an upgrade right now offensively, I think at least, over J.D. Davis and over Dom Smith. I mentioned Andrew Benintendi. I don't think they're going to be hot for Andrew Benintendi. See, the Mets need, you know, you mentioned earlier, about a minute ago, another Joey Gallo. Now, I'm not saying the Mets should go after Joey Gallo by any stretch, but they actually need a guy like that, a, a slugger. Like, a guy who, he may not hit for the highest average, he may strike out a lot, but he's got pop. And the reason why that makes sense for this lineup, maybe more so than other lineups, is that the Mets already have that grinded-out kind of team. That's what they have. And it's fine, by the way. They remind me a little bit offensively of the Kansas City Royals in 2015, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But I think if you want to take this lineup to another level... You want to give it more versatility, and that's another guy who can hit the ball over the fence. One other bat I want to mention, because he qualifies in the whole catching upgrade angle, is Sean Murphy of the Oakland A's. Murphy is major upgrade offensively over Tomas Nitto, major upgrade over James McCann, God knows when he comes back, and he's a gold-glove uh, caliber catcher. So while you're upgrading yourself offensively, unlike Wilson Contreras, who is a tremendous hitter, but you're going to lose a little bit glove-wise. Murphy is very steady. He's caught Bassett in the past, who's very complicated to catch, as we know. If they want to add a catcher, I don't know what the tag's going to be on him because he's signed. He's under team control for like three more years. So the A's may not be in a rush to deal him because they don't really have to pay him big-time money quite yet. But that's one of the catchers to keep an eye on if the Mets are looking for an upgraded catcher. Because right now, they're going to go to war with Tomas Nitto and Patrick Mazika. I don't think they're calling up Alvarez anytime soon, nor do I think they trust him defensively. McCann's going to be out for an extended period of time. So if they look at the Mazika-Nitto combo and say, hey, we could use an upgrade, I think Sean Murphy would make a lot of sense. Have I missed anybody, Hoff? Uh, two people. One is realistically going to get traded from the Reds. Uh, Brennan Drury. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned him at all. He's a guy very versatile. He can play a bunch of different positions. He's going to be traded from the Reds, no doubt. That's a great call. No, that's a great call. And I, and I apologize because I had a few people mention that to me in the last couple of days. And I think I just completely forgot to write him down. Uh, it's weird because we just had him. <laughs> I mean, Eddie was, he was good. Too. Yeah, 
Oh, no doubt. He, but with the Yankees, he sucked. With the Mets, he was actually good last year. He was a productive yes. player. You're right, and anyone who's mentioned him is right. Right-handed bat gives you the versatility of playing anywhere in the infield. I don't believe this year that he's having is a fluke by any stretch. So I don't think he's just going to come here and stop hitting. I think Drury's a really solid target, and you'd have to think the Reds are trading him. He's a free agent at the end of the year. He's making no money. They're not going anywhere. Drury's a very solid option if the Mets could get him for a good price. Uh, and just to solidify or, or piggyback off of what you said, and I'll name the last guy that I have on my list, you mentioned how basically just one bat is a power bat. And it really just reflects on how good of an offseason the Mets have had because in years past, it's always like, oh, they have one or two guys that are really, you know, unbelievable, but they're missing so many pieces. They fixed all the holes this year, which is pretty right. impressive. They did a really good job. So got to give kudos to Billy Epler and everybody else on board. But here's the one other. We talked about Juan Soto and the, uh, the possibility of him being traded before the deadline. How about this? Because he's up for soon to be a year away from free agency. Shohei Otani. Is it a possibility that the Angels <laughs> trade him? No, because you think about it. You talk about, well, why won't the Reds get rid of uh, Brand, tra- trade Brandon Drury? He's a free agent. Well, Shohei Otani, he's got one year left after this, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. So- it- there's an answer to this because I don't think the angels are ready to just say, okay, this is all failed. Like they may get to that point, you know, maybe after this season, if they lose 95 games and they certainly seem on their way, they may reevaluate and have a major auction where they say, all right, this isn't going anywhere. Let's trade Otani. I don't know if they'll ever do that with Mike Trout. I just doubt it. And especially if Soto's traded and they see the package that the nationals get and the angels say, holy crap, well, they got that for Soto. Let's auction them off. I just don't think that's something that happens right now. And I remain skeptical Soto's traded right now. I really have a tough time believing that the Soto thing comes together all before the trade deadline. I think you open yourself up. Even though you're cutting off the Mets and the Yankees and these other teams saying you only have two shots with Soto to win a title as opposed to three if you trade him right now, which absolutely is significant. I do think you widen the net with a lot of teams, even small market teams, that say, hey, two full years of Juan Soto? Effort, let's do it. So I just, I, I get it because the Angels suck. And so from afar, it's like, hey, why not? I just don't think that's something they would entertain until the offseason. Uh, but of course, look, would you consider it at that point? The problem is once I'm a year away from him being a free agent, a part of me doesn't want to give up any prospects. A part of me says, I'll just wait till he's a free agent and try to outbid everybody. But it that- feels different with Soto. feels a little different with Soto because of the extra year. That, that's fine, and that, but this is why I don't understand how the, the teams don't think ahead in this aspect of it. Like, when the Mets let Jose Reyes walk for nothing, basically. It's like, you built a stadium for him, first of all. You built a stadium for this guy, and then in the end, you made a choice of David Wright over Jose Reyes, which I was still fine with, but they really never had an intention to sign both. Like, you have to have an idea of what you're doing going into an offseason, and you have to to unload when you can to get something back. Yeah, but I don't think the Angels have made that decision. I don't think they've decided to trade Shohei Otani. I don't think they've given up on that idea. Well, I'm making it for them. They should trade him. <laughs> You're just trying to convince them. Let's go. I understand. I completely understand. Please, please trade. It's a good strategy to have. Please, please trade him. Uh, we'll do more on this trade deadline as we get closer and the rumors start to percolate, and obviously we'll react to it. We'll come back after the series against the San Diego Padres and wrap up the first series of the All-Star break, and obviously we'll have some fun with the Subway Series next week, the New York Mets against the New York Yankees. You could drop us a note, at Evan Roberts WFAN. And what's your Twitter handle, at Pete Hoffman or something? 
It's at the Hoff WFAN. At the Hoff WFAN. There we go. And, of course, leave a comment, leave a review. We appreciate you listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>